I want to welcome up somebody who is not only a dear friend of mine, but uh, can I even say is, uh, is a fatherly figure in my life. More like an older brother, I suppose. But uh, many of you know that my, my own uh, daddy passed away about a month ago, almost exactly. And uh, I am so thankful that the Lord has placed a number of men of God in my life that are just a little bit older than me and a whole lot wiser in many respects, have life experience that I lack and uh, are such a blessing for me personally. And one of those brothers is Dr. Mike Cole. And uh, he is a blessing to, uh, to me. He's a blessing to our church family. And if you are fortunate enough to be one of the guys who gets up a little earlier on Thursday morning for the 260 reading group that Mike leads over at Panera Bread, and that's a little commercial. On Thursday mornings, it's Mike. On Friday mornings, it's Gary. And we have um, several women's groups that meet as well. We're giving Panera a lot of business, but I'm telling you, it is good stuff. I hear such good reports all the time. Mike, come on up, bro. We love you. We're thankful for you. And happy Father's Day, friend. Well, good morning, everybody. Well, you know, I I was born uh, on a uh, a day almost 68 years ago, and the first Sunday that it was possible for me to be in church, I was in church. Grew up, my mom and dad grew up in their church 44 years that they were and involved with that church, and and so church is what I know. Uh, Church is what I appreciate, mostly. And it's always an honor to be here with you, always. And my, my Thursday group, I have to tell you, as much as I love Sunday, my Thursday group, it's the highlight of my week. So it's, it's and then there's Leonard. So. I was, think, I was thinking driving over today, there was this old limerick that someone once wrote, and I, it, it's not about you guys, but I thought I'd share it with you. It said, to live above with the saints that we love, well, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> not about you. <laughs> not about you. All right, so let me pull back the window as I, it's Tim and... Kelly and uh, the staff are so kind to let me come and share frequently here at the church as to, I like to pull back the window a little bit so you get a little bit more of a personal understanding of me. I am going to direct you into a book today, into a text today that is near and dear to my heart. Many, many years ago when I went back to graduate school, when it came time to write a master's thesis, it was not a hard decision for me to do to write it from the book of James. And in fact, that particular piece of writing was just found in chapter one. It didn't go anywhere else in the book. And then years later, when I finished my doctorate, I wrote it on the entire book. So I just want you to know two things. I love the book of James. Amen. And you're going to be here until at least Tuesday. <laughs> no, just kidding. All right, let's open up... Uh, our Bibles, if you have them, and if not, we're going to have some slides up here. James chapter 1, and in fact, we're only going to take a look specifically, I'll, I'll reference other verses, 
But specifically, we're going to take a look at James 1 and verse 1 today. This is the introduction to the book. It speaks to not only the author, and it speaks to the audience, but how the author describes himself is what is the intention of my heart to share today. And so when you open up the book of James, it's a different writing, obviously, than you and I. When you and I write letters to someone, or sometimes even when we text someone or we email someone, we usually put our name, amen, at the very bottom of the letter. Here you see just from the immediate who is the author of this. Now, this is the interesting thing. There are four James mentioned in the New Testament. And so throughout scholastic history and throughout, if you will, church tradition, the question has always been raised, well, who is this James? And I'm going to suggest to you, I think it's pretty much landed on the fact that this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, we know from Mark 6 and Matthew chapter 11 that while Jesus was doing earthly ministry, none of his family had come to a place of faith in him. But we find James then following Jesus' death. We find him in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to fall in Acts chapter 1. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how a person who could listen to someone as much as James probably listened to his brother. Because in the book of James, there are 15 references to, to the Sermon on the Mount. So in other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that James listened to what Jesus said, but didn't come to embrace it until a later point in his life. Now the question would be, when did that happen? In 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 7, it says there was one point in the, in the post-resurrection life of Jesus before he went to be with the Father. There was one time when he appeared to 500 people at one time. And I'm going to suggest to you, I think it's highly likely that James was one of those 500 to whom he appeared. And then as you fast forward into his life, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 15, he is a pivotal leader in the Jerusalem council that helped the early church work through the tension of law and grace. Tradition says he died in 62 AD, making the book of James the probably earliest book in the New Testament. And tradition, before he died, tradition also had dubbed him as camel knees. Camel knees, because he prayed so much that his knees were calloused. He was thrown off the temple. That did not kill him and then was beaten to death with clubs. And as we all know, sometimes God uses those acts of martyrdom, amen, to, to sow his seeds throughout the, the, the surrounding lands of Palestine. When Stephen was martyred at the end of chapter 7, chapter 8 of the book of Acts says that it pleased the Jews, it pleased the leadership that the Jews would be so reacting to this that they were scattered throughout the, the land outside of Palestine. And let me suggest to you that sometimes God uses tragedy and trial to scatter you and put you where he wants you to go. Amen? All right, I'm, I'm going to end up today with one of the stories about how that's true in my life. But you'll see that James is now declaring himself to be a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why include them both? Why would it not have been enough to him to say, I'm a slave of God, or I'm a slave 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to suggest to you it's a very subtle way of suggesting early in the church history, reminding them of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fatherhood of God. But notice there's, a, there's something there also. He says, James, he just calls himself a slave of God. Doesn't say he's the half-brother of Jesus. Doesn't say he's the leader of the church or one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Makes no mention of that because he was content to live his life with the understanding that he was the slave of God. Now, in the Old Testament, if I worked for Pastor Tim and Pastor Kelly as a slave, all right, I could be in their employ for no more than six years. At the end of six years, I would be let go. I would be allowed to experience freedom, having paid my debt to them or sold myself into the employ. But if I loved working for them, and I had a family that had developed in that six-year period of time, I could choose willingly and unreservedly to yoke myself, to bind myself together with Pastor Tim and Pastor Kelly for the rest of my life. And here's what would do. They would take you over to a doorpost and your ear would be pierced with an owl. And that, but there was actually a hole that was bored into your ear and it marked you off forever as belonging to your master. Your freedom of choice your willful surrender of your life. That's what the Old Testament history of this servant of God, slave of God, bond servant of God, that's where it comes from. But it begs the question, what does that mean? What does that mean not only in the culture of that time when someone calls himself a slave? Because most of us are the products of a Western education, amen? And we hear the word slave and traditionally, we have an immediate thought as to what that means. Today, as people living in the Santa Maria area, we have an understanding that there is the need for us to continue as the church to reach out to people who have been trafficked in some form of slavery. All right? It's very real. But in this case, when I began to look at this verse and, and knew that I had the privilege of kind of pointing us into the book of James as we finished reading it in our 260 group this week, I was struck by what it means in this time, in our culture. What does it mean to be a slave for God? So I've got three things to share with you today. Here's the first. It is complete loyalty. Complete Loyalty and your loyalty will be tested. Amen. Your loyalty will be tested that the Jewish people understood about their loyalty being tested. Joshua 24. You'll remember before Joshua was going to be with God. He was still building the leadership around him as the people were now into the promised land and and who he was going to be going to the father. And so once again, they had fallen into a place where they, they were vacillating between whose allegiance, whose kingdom they would stand. And the, the immortal words of Joshua in chapter 24 and verse 14 where he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day. 1 Kings 18, Elijah 
Elijah would tell the people as they were gathered before he did battle with Ahab and 400 false prophets, 450 false prophets of, of the god Baal. He looked at the people and said, look, how long are you going to vacillate between two opinions? If God is God, let him be God. But if you're going to fall Baal, fall Baal. You can't be in both what? You can't be in both camps. I love the book of Proverbs. And by the way, the book of Proverbs is often called the James of the Old Testament because it's so practical. But tucked away in the 20th chapter of the book of Proverbs in verse 6, we read these words. Many a man proclaims his own faithfulness, his own loyalty, but a trustworthy man, a reliable man who can find. In other words, there are not what? Many. So what does this loyalty look like? We have the most famous story of it, of course, in Peter's denial of Christ. So shortly after Peter had said, I will go to prison with you, I will even die for you. And yet then, when that loyalty was tested, not once, not twice, but three times, I never knew him. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. We understand that loyalty is going to be tested. It's an important thing for us today to consider, as is my, my brother Tim. I am a huge baseball fan. Now, unfortunately, we, we root for opposite teams. That's all right, because his team got beat 15 to nothing last night. And my team had a six-run lead in the eighth inning yesterday and got beat. It was not a good day. But here's a story to illustrate what complete loyalty looks like. Back in the late 1940s, more specifically 1947, there was a young African-American man named Jackie Robinson. You may have heard of him. And Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. Went on to be Rookie of the Year, went on to win some Most Valuable Player Awards. But on this one day, playing second base as he did, a ball was hit to Jackie Robinson. He fumbled it, and it was an error. And the cat calls and the boos and the derogatory names all began to cascade on Jackie Robinson. And he writes in his autobiography that he was standing at second base and running the question through his head, can I do this? Not play second base, but the object of being such scorn and ridicule and mocking and the racial epithets that would just rain down on him. And then there was a man that slid over from his shortstop position. His name was Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese was from Kentucky, a southern man through and through. And Pee Wee Reese went over to second base and put his arm around Jackie Robinson. And as he did so, the booing, the hissing, the catcalls, the racial epithets stopped. And Jackie Robinson once wrote later, 
that one gesture saved my career. Pee Wee Reese demonstrated to Jackie Robbins and his teammate complete loyalty. But I'm going to suggest to you today that loyalty is going to be tested. And for some of you here today, you need to hear what I'm going to say next. You have walked with Jesus a long time. Thank you. But there was a man named Demas in the New Testament. In Philemon's little book, verse 24, it says that he had served alongside the Apostle Paul. But the last thing we hear about Demas is in the book of Timothy, where Paul writes, knowing that he's going to die just a matter of days, Paul writes, Demas has deserted me, having loved the present world. I love you, and I'm going to tell you something that you may not want to hear right now. Until we get to glory, you are always going to be the object, the attention of the enemy of our souls to draw you away from the kingdom of God and back into the kingdom of darkness. And if he cannot take your salvation, he will besmirch your character. So, dear ones, listen to me. You must continue to express loyalty to the kingdom of God every single day of your life. Now, the question is, where is that loyalty going to be tested? Let me read some things to you. Is your loyalty being tested in your marriage? On this Father's Day, I sent this to Pastor Tim, and I, don't, I think Pastor Gary got it as well. There was a study just done. 19,000 people took this study in multiple church denominations across this country, and it asked the question, how, how does marriage in America affect the growth or the non-growth of the Christian church. And not surprisingly, the study came out and said that when we have this continual proliferation of divorce in this country and this continued abandonment of families by fathers principally, there is a clear connection between Christianity not thriving in our country because marriages are not surviving in our country. So dear ones, particularly on this Father's Day, your loyalty will be tested in your marriage. Your loyalty, dads, will be tested when your children are more like the prodigal than anything else. Your loyalty will be tested. Will you pray for them? Will you continue to set the example for them? Will you continue to be there for them when they come to their senses and finally come home? Will you open the door to them and embrace them and say, I have been praying for this moment? Will your loyalty be tested, not just in your marriage, but will your loyalty be tested in friendship? How many of you, you don't have to show your hands, how many of you have gone through the loss of a close friendship? There was, a, there was a time when you were walking with this individual and something happened. The loyalty was breached and the relationship ended. 
That's why we keep speaking into each other's lives, amen? As friends, we keep speaking into each other's lives because that will be tested too. How about this? Loyalty on your job site. Or loyalty to the rejection of the values of this age and an embrace of the values of the inerrant word of God. Loyalty would be tested. Here's number two. It has the idea of absolute obedience. Absolute obedience. If loyalty will be tested, obedience will be challenged. More often than not, obedience is challenged by the difficulties that God allows to come into our life. James begins in chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, count it all joy when you enter into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let that endurance have its complete work, that you might become mature in your faith, lacking in nothing. Stay with me now. Why would he go from just a simple James, a slave of the Lord, Jesus Christ and God, to the 12 tribes, the nation, the Jews who had been spread throughout the lands outside of Palestine because of poverty and because of persecution? So why does he drop into, count it all joy when you enter into various trials? Because, dear people, there will not come a moment when you're still breathing that you won't be tested. And your trial may look very different than mine but it will be tested and it will often come. Your obedience will be challenged in the difficulties that come in your life. Now, there's probably no better story. and We're not going to turn to it, but there's no better story about absolute obedience than in Genesis chapter 22. If you've not read Genesis 22 in a while, I challenge you to do so. It's the story of Abraham and more specifically, it's the story of Abraham and the offering of his son, Isaac. And it begins with God speaking to Abraham and saying this, take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the mountain where I will tell you, and there sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. Now, that's staggering enough, amen? That's staggering enough. By the way, it says your only son. There were two sons, remember? Ishmael was the son of the flesh. Isaac is the son of promise. God had said, I will bless you. I will make your descendants as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. And here's the, here's the first picture in Genesis 22 of the absolute obedience of Abraham. It says in verse 3 that the next morning, he got up and summoned two of his servants to go with him, and they saddled their donkeys, and off they went. The next what? Morning. All right, this is a freebie. This was not in my original notes, okay? Here we go. If you fail to be obedient immediately, three things are going to happen. Here's the first. You're going to make every excuse you can think of about why you shouldn't do what you've been asked to do. All right? Sadly, we must drop back into the book of Proverbs again now. It says, every man's, every man's thoughts are pure in his own heart. But God, but God weighs the motive, right? You and I can explain away everything we do. We can find a reason for a while there will be not just one piece, not just two pieces, but three pieces of 
tri-tip on my plate on multiple occasions this afternoon, right? Or that third slice of pie, or that, that fudging a little bit on my taxes, or that going 70 and a 65, watch out now. <laughs> you can self-justify yourself. Here's number two, the enemy will lie to you. Because you know the enemy is the chief liar, right? You remember what the first thing is in Genesis chapter 3 when he begins to speak? Surely God did not say. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> Surely God did not say you can't eat of the tree of that fruit. Yes, he did. So we will, we will deceive ourselves and justify our behavior. We, the enemy will lie to us. And here's the third thing. If we're not immediately obedient to God giving us an opportunity to be so, we may miss the opportunity of blessing somebody else. Your obedience will be challenged. Dads, if you're here today, model and message this. The first two things from James chapter 1. Model and message. Don't run away from the trial. Embrace it because it's going to have a positive effect. James 1, 5 through 8. Model and message to your children and your grandchildren. And moms, you too. That you won't make it without the wisdom of God being poured out into your life. None of us is that smart, amen? <laughs> I got a lot of little letters after my name. Don't mean anything when I need the wisdom of God. All right? Model and message. There's going to come trial. You need the wisdom of God to navigate it. Where's the obedience of your life going to be challenged? Where are you struggling to be obedient? How about your prayer life? See, one of the, one of the first times I, I met Tim and started a friendship with Tim, and I remember Tim saying to me that the genesis of 260 in part was that he had struggled to read through the Bible in a year, or he'd started these plans, and then all of a sudden, you know, he just couldn't stay up with it and so forth. And that was the genesis God used to come up with that which we so love here in our congregation and other congregations are, are using it in the 260 reading journal. But he didn't say anything about his prayer life, did he? Some of us are struggling with our prayer life, amen? I'm married to a woman who's on her way up from Costa Masons this morning. She's bringing hostage with her, our five-year-old granddaughter. <laughs> oh, help us, Jesus. My wife is a prayer warrior. She gets up in the morning and she finds a place in our house that she's dedicated to pray and she goes hard after it. But if you ask me, I'd rather read my Bible, to be honest with you. Can I just be incredibly honest with you right now? Reading my Bible is easy. Praying is sometimes very difficult. Where's your obedience to prayer being challenged? Where is your obedience to the word of God being challenged? How about serving? I'm sure if you were to talk to Pastor Kelly or Pastor Lisa or any of the people on the staff here, and you ask them after the service, is there any place in the church that I can serve? I think you would hear this excited answer. One word. Can you guess what it is? Yes! 
because for Tim to do, Lisa to Kelly to do, Kaylin to do, anybody who stands here for me to do what I'm doing right now is because somebody's serving your kids. Right? Somebody, somebody made coffee. Now, I didn't get one this morning. I'm not, I'm not resentful, but somebody went out and got those chocolate donuts. Come on. <laughs> so there better be one of them there back from me, right? Serving. Somebody sets up the chairs. Somebody vacuums the floor. Somebody leads us in worship. Somebody, somebody, somebody. Amen? Where is that being challenged? God's telling you to do something. Where is that challenge? How about your giving? Oh, got off to quiet. <laughs> See, in the African-American church, I've now gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to kind of pull back the curtain again and give you a story. My mother and father-in-law died mother-in-law and father-in-law died in 1988 and 1989. And uh, because they owned a home and they had made some other investments, my wife and I, along with my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law, were the recipients of a, a pretty good sum of money around 1990. And I'm going to tell you, I don't remember what the sum was, but I'm telling you it was a sum I had never seen before. Amen. <laughs> First year out of undergraduate school, I made $6,750 a year teaching. Ooh. 67.50. Some of y'all carry more about that in your wallet today. <laughs> if, you, if you are carrying that, you better see me. But I'll be, glad, I'll, I'll be glad to be your bodyguard as you move through life. But anyway, so we get the sum of money. And without any hesitation, both Cindy and I said, it'll be so much fun to be able to tithe this money in addition to our local church that we were serving. It'll be so much fun to tie this money to ministries and organizations that have been blessed to us. So we did. We began to write checks, right? So one day, God is my witness. I'm in my car. I'm driving down one of the streets in Huntington Beach where we were pastoring at that time. And I drive by this, this Baptist church. It was to the right. I know where I am. I'm going down Gothard. It was the right-hand side of the street. And I heard the Lord Jesus say to me in my spirit, I want you to send those people some money. And he even told me how much money I was supposed to send. So I go home. Cindy and I are kind of debriefing today. And I said, hey, I was driving by Warner Avenue Baptist Church today. And the Lord said to send them money. You okay with that? And she said, that's fine. Did he tell you how much to send? Yes. Send it. Write a check. Go. So I wrote the check, sent the check. A week later, the pastor of the church calls me and says, I don't know how you knew this. But the check that you sent us was for the exact, hello, exact amount of money that we needed to replace a few of our doors because they were not fireproof and they were going to shut us down. Is that, is that not cool? Is that, see, God does that stuff. I'll go you one better. I'm standing in the shower one day, and i got to be honest with you, I, I, I often hear from the Lord in the shower. I'm not trying to, to give you a picture or anything, <laughs> but I do. And so I'm in the shower one day, and the Lord says, I want you to send Karen 
who is a friend of ours. I want you to send her a check. Now, Karen, you need to know this. Karen was a foster mother and over the course of her life had had over 200 foster children in her home, most of them substance addicted or with some kind of mental challenge. So I got out of the shower, talked to Cindy, got on the phone, I called Karen, I said, Karen, I just want you to know the Lord told me today to send you a check. And she started, she was the designated weeper in our church. You know, we have designated hitters in baseball. No, no, Karen was the designated weeper and she all, she just begins to weep. And she says, can I ask what it was for? And I said, yes, and told her the amount. And she begins to weep even more. And she says, when she stopped weeping, she said, Mike, I need to tell you something. The foster care agency just called me and said there were some twins that they wanted to place in our home, but we don't have a, we don't have a stroller that can fit two. But I found one in the penny saver. And by faith, I bought it. Guess how much money? the exact amount of money, right? So, oh, it, it, it goes one step farther. She was a big Disneyland person. And so when she went to Disneyland the next time, you remember when Disneyland, you, they had those little license plates with your name on it you could buy? So she bought one that said Mike, and she bought one that said Cindy, and she put them on the back of the stroller. <laughs> Is your giving being challenged? Is your church attendance being challenged? There was a, a recent survey done in a major United States denomination. And they asked the people of their denomination how often they thought they needed to go to church to be seen as a regular church goer. The answer was four times in 10 weeks. In other words, they're not going more than they are going. Tim loves to quote Hebrews 10, verse 23. I love to quote Hebrews chapter 9. I think it's verse 23. Forsake. I know it in the King James. Aren't you proud of me? Forsake not the assembling together. Your obedience will be challenged. Final one is this, total surrender. So we go from complete loyalty and absolute obedience to total surrender. No better place than in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says to his Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, you might want to think about how it was that in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, in what would be ultimately commencing the culmination of Jesus' life, you might be thinking at some point, where did that start? Where that sense of total surrender started? was earlier in the gospel in Luke chapter 9 where it says in verse 51 that Jesus, knowing that he was going to ascend to the Father, so there's a time frame there that he's aware of, and there is a return to be with his Father that he's aware of. 
But it says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 that Jesus set his face like flint, like I'm looking at the center section. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem and began to go to that place that they knew, he knew, would be the source at the end of his life. In the upper room, John 13 through 17, at the end of John 17, Jesus says to his disciples, Arise, let us be going. And they open the door and they go out into the night. And they find that garden where it says that Jesus had frequently prayed. The culmination of Jesus' life, watch this now people, the culmination of Jesus' life was just a continuation of what he did day by day by day. I am totally surrendered to the will of my Father, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The Apostle Paul once wrote, I die daily. We need to model and message dads to our kids as much as we want to watch them grow up, our grandkids as much as we want to watch them grow up. The issue here is not dying daily in anything physical, it's spiritual. It's the idea that I see things in my life. I, and I'm, Here it is again, I'm going to tell you. If you think I got this whole thing down, this whole complete loyalty, absolute obedience, total do you think I got it down? I don't. There are times when I struggle just like anybody else. God, are you really asking me to do that? Do I really have to do that? One of, the, one of the verses is kind of we begin to finish today. One of the verses of scripture in Luke's gospel that means the most to me personally is in Luke 9 where Jesus gives the definition of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower. And he says, if anyone, anyone, not just the super spiritual, not the cultural elite, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Do you know that that's, there's a reason I think about that verse almost every day of my life? Because I have to ask myself as I hear it, am I doing it? Am I denying myself or am I placing my will, my wishes, my dreams above what God has said? What do you find most difficult to surrender to God? Could be your time. Could be a relationship. Could be a habit. I'll give you last one more last story from my life. I'm not even sure that I've ever shared this with Tim or the, the guys at 260. Maybe I have. I was 21 years old and got married last semester of undergraduate school. And my wife and I began to make plans for what life beyond undergraduate school would look like. And here's what we thought it was going to look like. I had been offered a graduate teaching assistantship at my alma mater. 
which meant that I would have been paid to teach a few lower division classes while I worked on my master's. And then when that was completed, we were going to go to either to Purdue, Northwestern, or USC and get a PhD in communication. And I was going to, you know what, you know, 21 years old, and I'm, I've given up the idea of being a professional baseball player. <laughs> this body would not have done well. <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to run political campaigns. In fact, if you'd said to me, what's your ultimate job? I would have loved to have been the press spokesman for the President of the United States. I would have been fun to listen to, amen? <laughs> anyway, a week before I started that job, my alma mater got sued by the federal government for affirmative action violations. And the job that I had been offered, had so gratefully taken, was now <coughs> gone. It's what we had built our life on. But here's the, here's the end of the story. As Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, right? Here's the rest of the story. In a seven-day period of time, from losing that job that I desperately wanted and was going to pave our way to the future I wanted. God took my life, God took our life, and radically turned it around and put me in a Christian school in Cypress, California, where for the next five years I taught school and ended up in administration. And from there, went to my first pastorate in Huntington Beach. If you had said to me at 21, Mike, you're going to pastor, you're going to spend more than four decades being a pastor, I would have said, you cray-cray. <laughs> that, that, that can I get a witness, sister? That is not happening right there, right? Because I remember I grew up in church, and I understood what it was like to be a pastor. Your loyalty will be tested. Your obedience will be challenged, and your surrender has got to be done every single day. Model and message this, Dad. You may not get what you want in life, but you will get what God has for you. You may not think that reading the word and hiding it in your heart is something you need to do, but you can't act out of what you don't know. So model and message, not just the need to read it, but the need to apply it. Because the most famous book in the book of James is in verse 22. It says, be a doer of the word, not a hearer, only deceiving yourself. Model on message, James chapter 2, that you don't treat people different on the basis of who they are or where they've come from or what kind of job they have or which neighborhood they live in or what ethnic group they belong. No, no, you treat people as people created in the likeness and the image of God. <laughs> Model and message to your kids, dads. That you say you have faith, you better demonstrate it by what you do. You better demonstrate it by what you do. 
So the challenge for you dads, the challenge for all of us is to read through the book of James this week and begin to ask yourself this question, two questions. Which speaks to loyalty? Which speaks to obedience? Which speaks to surrender? How am I doing? And then ask yourself the second question. Lord, would you fill me up today with your spirit? Because I know me and I haven't got it. And I'm not sure I want to do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'll leave you with this as Pastor Tim comes. Most of you would know that in 1517, a very major significant event happened in church history. It was when a man named Martin Luther took 95 things that he'd written down, grievances, if that's, I guess that's the word I can use, grievances against the church, and went to a door in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed it on the door. And he got in hot water. And he was called before a, a group of people who had the ability not just to excommunicate him, remove him from the priesthood, but had the power and the authority, or so they thought, to take his life. And this is what he said when he was put before him. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, take back what I said or wrote, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I think that word not only resonates within the heart of fathers who are here today, as it does in mine, but in all of us. And even as we prayed over high school graduates, I think that that word should like be alive in your hearts as well. You will be tested. Life is going to test you. The enemy is going to test you. And where are you going to stand? I want to pray a blessing over dads as we get ready to head out today. But the word that I just kept kind of hearing as I was meditating on this, and I heard it even echoed in, in some of what uh, Brother Mike was sharing, had to do with the resourcing of your life. And there are times, kind of like when you're driving a car and the, the gas tank is... Uh, kind of getting depleted. It's, you know, you're watching the gauge go go down. Whose responsibility is it for us to notice and to pull over and to get filled up? It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. Men, I want to say to you, it is your responsibility. It is my responsibility to know where where the gauge is and to pull over and to get filled up. And we know where we can get filled up. We go to God's word. 
We cry out to him in prayer. We turn to each other. We say, hey, I need something. I'm, I'm, I'm running on empty. Would you, would you pray for me? Would you encourage me? And yet there are times when we still find that we've run out of gas. It hasn't happened to me in a long time, but it has happened. And at that time, in those times when we, when we find ourselves actually out and depleted and maybe even thinking about this message and like this call to loyalty and obedience and we look at our lives and we go, yeah, that, that hasn't happened much. Or there are some very significant times when I think I've really, really blown it. My obedience failed. My loyalty was not there. Here's the great thing about the Lord. Just like if you've got a AAA card in your wallet, going back to that car analogy, you run out of gas, you pull over, and you do not have to feel like you've got to push your car 10 miles back into town all by yourself. You can call. And you don't have to call AAA because in this instance, we just call out to Jesus. And again, we call out to people who are in our lives. And we say, I need help. I'm at this low spot. My tank is empty. I have run dry. Maybe I've even blown it. Maybe I was not obedient or was not loyal. But can I tell you that here is the gift that God brings. He will always show up. He will never let you down. He never says, oh, you ran out of gas? Well, you're just gone. We're just cashing it in and selling that car, and you're, you're like out of the auto business. No, God has something for you today, and he wants to fill you up. He wants to fill you up no matter how dry the tank has been. I want dads to stand, would you? If you're a dad, Maybe you got a baby on the way. Maybe it's your first one. You count. I want you to stand. Jesus, I pray, Lord, today for these men. God, I ask, Father, for blessing on their lives. And, Lord, no matter where they are on the journey, no matter how equipped or full their tanks are today, Lord, I pray that you would fuel them. Lord, by your Spirit, by your word, and Lord, by this company of people around them today. Lord, that we just pray for their blessing. Lord, fill them up, equip them for this next part of their journey. And Lord, any place where they may have gotten it wrong, like I have received your grace, Lord, I pray for grace to be poured out on them. In Jesus' name, Lord, bless them today in your name. Amen and amen. Amen. Church, you are loved. Have a great Father's Day. We'll see you next Sunday.